years. Um, normally, I'm, you know, playful and goofy and doing all kinds of stuff. I'm not sure how much of that's going to come through. Uh, I got to be honest with you. I want to. I want Jesus to shine through better than me. And um, and when I'm tired and I start goofing around, it becomes about me. And I I really don't want that to happen, um, especially as we're looking at the words of Christ this morning. So I'm going to invite you to join me with a word of prayer. We're going to get right into the Book of John. Lord, as we, as we come together and we once again uh, look at written words that are just words on a page, and yet your Spirit um, inspired them, illuminates them for us, um, transforms us through them, Lord, we pray that we would see you above all, that you, our Father, would be um, magnified in our hearts, our minds, our souls, and that Jesus the Son would be glorified. Lord, we know that he is present with us. Um, we ask that we would see him, know him, be transformed. That your spirit might guide us and teach us and correct us. Um, lead us, encourage us. Uh, Lord, that we might be better equipped to be your church. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to the book of John, chapter 5 and verse 30. Uh, we're 15 weeks into a study of John. Uh, there are 21 chapters of John. We're in chapter 5. So by that math, we should finish sometime next spring. Um, I'm not in a real rush because there's just so much in John. Uh, and the style, John's style, the way that he writes is so incredibly um, intricate. Uh, if you're familiar with the idea of a Celtic knot, um, Celtic knots are those designs that people get tattooed when they think they're Vikings. Um, you know, it's the interwoven, all the interwoven uh, lacing, and that's a very Celtic style. Um, we, we have uh, artifacts, Celtic artifacts, going back to the Bronze Ages um, of, uh, with that design. It's just a very, it's a very Celtic thing. And part of, the, part of the, the, the beauty of a Celtic knot is there's no beginning and no end. It just kind of weaves. And those interlocking designs, the whole idea is it kind of has an infinite um, weaving. Um, and the idea is just how, how intricately it, it gets wound together. And John writes very much like that. Uh, John's gospel, he really had the time. Um, again, this is written toward the end of the first century. So he's had decades to really think about how am I going to present Jesus to people. And if you're not careful, when you read John's gospel, you just read story, story, sermon, sermon, story, story, sermon, 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 story, 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 story. And you go, okay, that was cool. That was wonderful. That was not John's point. John really wants you to read deeply, um, to, to think about the connections of things. How do things fit together? John does not write chronologically. Um, he takes things out of order to put them next to each thing, to some things and then put them kind of distant from other things to draw your mind, to engage your thinking. And so when we get to John chapter 5, John is using a discourse of Jesus to draw together all the threads of an already intricate work that's occurred in chapters 1 through 4. He's already had this very elaborate 
um, telling of stories, the, the water and the wine, um, the, the, uh, the, the Samaritan woman, the conversation with Nicodemus, the healing of the, of the ruler's son, um, the, the healing of a, of a lame man at Bethesda. Um, and now he is, he's drawing it all together with Jesus' discourse. And last week, if you were here last week, you know that I drew a parallel to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. There's a lot going in in the first part of Jesus' discourse that connects with his conversation with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. So as we read through chapter four, 5 here, um, beginning in verse 30, I want you to uh, turn on active listening, active reading. And be thinking about what we've covered in the book of John, uh, the gospel of John already, and how do those things connect? What, what story, what narrative from the previous chapters is John drawing on as he is presenting to us um, Jesus' words? Um, because he is really, really tying some things together. So chapter 5 and verse 30. Jesus speaking, he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now the next chapter deals with Jesus' feet in the 5,000, moves right on to some other stuff. But I want to I take what Jesus has to say here, and I want to really think about it, really process it. First of all, as we get at the beginning there, when Jesus says that I cannot do anything on my own, um, that his judgment comes not from his own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, Jesus makes the point that his intention, his purpose, his role on earth 
is not in conflict with the purpose of the Old Testament, with the God of the Old Testament, with the will of God. It is not, the new creation is not a replacement for the old creation, it is the restoration of the old creation. What God is doing, the new thing he is doing, is not God changing his mind and going, ah, reboot. But rather it is God saying, this was my intention all along. And Jesus manifesting the will of God and the judgment, uh, the Greek word is krisis, all right, which we get crisis from, the deciding of two things. Jesus' judgment and God's judgment are the same. That means that for all the people that walk around in our world and say, well, I'm a New Testament believer, not an Old Testament believer. And all we need is love, love, love. We don't need to worry about all that stuff in the Old Testament about God being righteous. We don't have to worry about all that stuff in the Old Testament about condemnation if we don't follow the will of God. The New Covenant covers everything. Life is good. God has not changed. There is no, oh, well, we're in the age of grace now, so I can get away with more. God's not paying us close attention because Jesus came. Wrong. The judgments of Christ are the judgments of the Father. There is no division in the Godhead. Now, that's an important theological point that John is making. As I mentioned last week, there was a teaching in the church that basically um, there was like two levels of creation. There was the spiritual level and that was all good and the physical level and that was all bad. And what you had to do was get rid of the physical level and then you could live in the spiritual level. And they taught things like Jesus didn't really have a body. Um, he just looked like he had a body. That's impressive. Um, you know, that's, that's a little bit of mental gymnastics to kind of make your theology work. Um, you know, and, and all kinds of things that they, they would develop. And, and the idea was this division in the Godhead. There's, there's a separation between the spiritual and the, and the physical. There's this dichotomy. And that, that bears down in our lives in all kinds of ways. We think that our Christianity only penetrates our lives to a certain level. That Christianity is fine and good at certain levels. It's fine and good on Sunday morning. It's fine and good when we're being compassionate to others. It's fine and good. But, you know, Christianity, it doesn't have any place um, in our private lives. Uh, the biblical teaching doesn't have any role in our bedroom. We, we choose what we do there. Uh, the, the, the order of creation, the way that God orders things, that doesn't have any bearing on my acquisition of, of filthy lucre in the world because I need filthy lucre to live. I need, uh, let me translate, filthy lucre is just another word for money. Um, you know, so I can do anything that I need to in order to acquire money because really, you know, money is how we live and yeah, it's not as much with Jesus. I mean, I, I can't tell you how irritating, how absolutely annoying to no end it is to get constantly bombarded with ads of, from pastors who side hustles to teach other people how to pastor. Because they're acquiring money, they're doing, um, basically what they're doing is they're selling a better way to do church. And they're profiting off of that. 
personally profiting off of that. That, that, that drives me so nuts. Any, I tell people all the time, if, if, somebody, if, somebody, if a teacher's website is their name, just don't waste your time. Because it's all about them. You say, that's awful cruel. But look, if, you're, if your face is bigger than Jesus, there's a problem. If your name is more important than your message, if people only care what you say if your name is popular and famous, there's an issue there. Jesus says he's, his judgments are the Father's. God is one. And he says that I don't do any of this on my own. I do it in harmony of God, with Christ, with God. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. If I'm the only person saying how awesome I am, there's something wrong. That's really what Jesus is saying. People are walking around going, have you seen Jesus? I mean, he's awesome. He's so cool. He heals people. He does awesome stuff. We should go follow him. And Jesus says, really? That's all it takes? All it takes is is people saying how awesome I am and you're willing to follow me or willing to kill me or one way or the other? How are we not asking the question? Look, this is Jesus saying this. How are we not asking the question whether I'm in harmony with God? That's the humility of Jesus, by the way. Jesus didn't walk around going, see, told you so, son of God. But rather Jesus says, why aren't you asking the question? Why aren't you asking whether I'm from God or not? Now, you might remember somebody who came to Jesus at night and asked him that actual question. Nicodemus came to Jesus. He said, we know you are from God. You're a teacher sent from God. I have some questions for you. Nicodemus was willing to ask the question. And Nicodemus is the one that that Jesus is glossing. We can see, we look back to John chapter 3, you'll see a lot of connections between this passage and Nicodemus. He says, if I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who who bears witness about me. And at this point, everybody goes, yeah, John the Baptist. Because you remember chapter 1, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist bore witness of Jesus. In fact, John, John, the author of the gospel, actually says, this is how John the Baptist bore witness of Jesus. So all of Jesus' listeners are going, yeah, I remember John the Baptist. He was pretty cool. Camels eating locusts. It was awesome. You sent to John. Verse 33, and he bore witness to the truth, but I don't care about the testimony from other men. Jesus says, look, your recommendation list, Jesus heals lame man, five stars, means nothing. That doesn't say that I'm from God. Why is that so important? Because people are addicted to celebrity. Human beings throughout history love a celeb. Now today we get them plastered all over our Facebook giving us political opinions. 
But back in the day, it was, what did Caesar say? Do you know that Julius Caesar was a best-selling author before he was a ruler of the empire? Julius Caesar wrote a, I'll put this bluntly, interesting version of his story of his wars in Gaul, in modern-day France. And everybody loved the sensational stories. And some of the things he he said had to be exaggerated. He talks about how the Celts came down the Alps mountains, half their heads shaved, their, their skin dyed blue, white hair trailing behind them, sledding on their shields. I just have a hard time believing that's actually how the Celts fought. You know, I mean, it worked for Legolas in, in, uh, in the two towers, but I don't think that it works. That was special effects. I don't think that that's how Celts fought. But Julius Caesar was wildly popular. And as a result, Caesar Augustus, his adopted son, actually his nephew, also wildly popular. It was easy to become popular. All you had to do was have a following or money to buy a following. Jesus says, it doesn't matter that men praise me. It doesn't matter that people are walking around talking about Jesus. He says, I say these things so you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp. John pointed you in the right direction. And you were comfortable with that as long as it fit what you wanted. But as soon as it it went a different direction, you were willing to turn away from him. So what is the thing that bears witness of Jesus? Jesus says, it is the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Every commentary I read on this text said that those works were Jesus' miracles. I do not agree. Now, that makes me weird. I get it. I'm used to it. What did I say the signs that Jesus was doing? What were the signs that he was doing? When he went and made water from wine, what was the sign? Was the sign was that people didn't recognize who he was. The sign was that they missed the point. When Jesus goes and does signs, the signs are not the miracles, it's his fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Those are the works that the Father gave him. Sometimes that was healing, sometimes that was miracles, but it wasn't always. What was the second sign that Jesus does in the book of John? Do you remember? Driving the money changers out of the temple. That was the second sign he did. No miracle there. Just a very angry young man. Now I'm older than he was. I can call him a young man. Just a very angry 30-year-old Galilean with a whip. Why was that a sign? Because it was fulfillment of the prophecy that the house of the Lord was committed to prayer. The purging of the thing. The works that Jesus was doing, the way that Jesus was living his life in conformity with the will of the Father was what was bearing witness to him. Look what he says. Verse 37. The Father who sent me has borne witness about me. Now that happened in John chapter 1. When when John the Baptist described Jesus' baptism. That the Holy Spirit came upon him. Called him the Lamb of God. The Father has sent me. He says he has borne witness of me. 
but his voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Now, think about this for a second. In the Old Testament, who both heard the voice of God and saw his form? Moses. Guess who Jesus is going to bring up in a minute? Moses. He is saying, you claim, you claim to be teachers of the scriptures. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? How, are you, how can you be a teacher of the Jews and not know these things? See what John is doing? He's tying all this together. He says, you claim to know God's will, but you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. Your word, his, his word is not abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he sent. You search the, the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, look at what he's saying. He's not saying it's wrong to study the Bible. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're studying the Bible for a solution to the problems of your life, instead of looking for the Son of God, you're missing the point. If I go to the Bible looking for answers for the problems in my life without first looking for Christ, who am I going to the Bible for? Me. You say, but I go to the Bible because I need answers to the problems of my life. If you start with your problems, instead of resetting and starting with Christ, guess who will be the center of the conversation? You. This is why I have my infamous counseling first step. You guys know this. Eric's counseling starts with a question. What are you doing that is sin? Stop doing that thing, then come back and talk to me. Why? Is it because I'm cold-hearted? No, it's because as long as you are focused only on satisfying your own needs and wants, rather than focused on Christ, any direction I give you from the scriptures, I hate to be so harsh, you will twist to your own priorities. That's what 90% of counseling is, by the way. Getting people to stop focusing on themselves and start focusing on God. Look at all my problems. I have many. I understand. Do you think that surprises Jesus? Do you think that your problems are unaccounted for by the God of the Bible? And until we get to the point that we realize that he is aware and fully capable of fixing our problems... All the fixes that we throw at them are just like when I patched the drain pipe in my basement. You know that anytime there's a home improvement story coming from me, it's going to be bad. <laughs> Y'all know how the water in Merrimack has a tendency to kind of do stuff. I swear it's 13% hydrochloric acid. I can't prove it because the government keeps changing the standards of what we're allowed to have in our water. But... 
my water in my now first of all this was a mistake i'm just going to go ahead and say there was a apparently very thin brass pipe connected to the drain of my kitchen sink i don't know a lot about brass pipes my understanding is that pipes are supposed to be copper or pvc i could be wrong this pipe had been eaten completely through it was thinner than paper and when i touched it with my finger and larry was there right i touched it with my finger and it collapsed like like i touched a a two inch drain pipe like a pipe this big i touched it and it crumbled i went but that's not good Larry looked at it. Now, he, he couldn't find his reading glasses, so he's kind of looking at it like this. But Larry looked at it and went, I can't fix this. I went, well, I can't fix this. How do, I, how do I drain my sink? So I went to Home Depot, and I found what was essentially a fiberglass wrap to put on this pipe. And I'm like, well, this can't be hard. Boats are made out of fiberglass, right? So this should be pretty simple, right? And it's like you have to soak it in water, and there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do to it. So I take it out, and I'm wearing these gloves, and I... I try to, of course, the, the pipe is way too high for me, and it's behind the dryer, so I'm, I'm on a chair, leaning sideways, one foot on the, on the windowsill, as I try to wrap this thing. So I wrap it, and I let it sit, and I'm like, okay, good. I cut it, and I put the extra back in the package, just in case I needed it, and then I ran the sink after it had dried, and it was still leaking. So my solution was to buy two more packages of the fiberglass stuff, and I just kept wrapping that bad boy until when the plumber came to cut it, he had to get a different saw because I, it had been almost entirely replaced by the fiberglass. It pro probably weighed about seven tons by the time I was done. We try to patch a problem instead of focusing on Christ. That's what we're doing in our lives. That's what Jesus says. You're going to the scriptures thinking that you have the solution for extending your current life. And I'm telling you that the solution is you're looking in the wrong place. You're going to the scriptures looking for you rather than going to the scriptures and looking for Jesus. You guys know, by the way, if you don't know this, my rule about reading the gospels. When you read the gospels, you need to remember you are everybody except Jesus. Everyone wants to go to the Gospels and read Jesus and go, I, that's, that's what I want to be. Just remember, that may be what we want to be, but what we actually are is everybody else. He says, you go to the Scriptures looking for this. He says, the Scriptures bear witness to me, but you're mi missing it. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. So you go to the Scriptures looking for eternal life, and yet you're refusing to go to the one that the Scriptures say will give you eternal life. I have come, he says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now that does not, by the way, mean God's love. It means your love of God. You don't love God. You love yourselves. So you go to the word of God for yourself. But someone who truly loves God goes to the scriptures looking for God. Jesus doesn't mince words. I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. Why? Because he's a celebrity. He's popular. He's cool. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is, why on earth do you think that you need me to accuse you before God? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And yet, parenthetically, he says, you don't believe. What were they going to Moses for? They were going to Moses for rules of life. They were going for, to Moses to find out how's the best way to be a good enough person to get on God's good side. And that is literally what they were doing. So they go to Moses, they go to the Old Testament, and they find out you're only supposed to walk a certain way during the Sabbath. You're not supposed to leave your house during the Sabbath. So they go, okay, we're not supposed to leave our house during the Sabbath, but the problem is we want to do things on the Sabbath. So how can we massage this? And one rabbi came up with the idea, well, your house is wherever you own something is. So the solution was to walk around with a pocket full of handkerchiefs. I am not making this up. It's in the Mishnah. Um, the idea was you had a bunch of, t- of uh, handkerchiefs. You would walk a Sabbath's journey and then drop a handkerchief. And now you were at home again and you could keep walking until you got to the second Sabbath journey and drop a handkerchief. And then you could keep walking. It's a good job making handkerchiefs for the people, I guess. But they were trying to manipulate the Bible so they could live their lives according to their terms but say it was God's will. You see? If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his words, how will you believe my words? When I was in school, I learned about vectors. Now, I have absolutely no idea how the math works, because I stopped paying attention as soon as they started adding letters. That just doesn't make any sense to me. But I do understand from shooting and archery and, and, um, and other things, trying to you know, hit people with uh, laser pointers, um, I do understand the concept that if you are off by a little at the beginning, the further you go, the further apart you will be. So if, uh, for example, one of, the, one of the things that happened in, the, in the, uh, the 50s and 60s is we were in the great space race to get to the moon because everybody needed to get to the moon and find, figure out whether it was cheese or not. And, um, and there was this big thing. And one of the first things that people realized was that the earth and the moon are moving. So you have to aim where the moon is not, but will be. Because, the, and the Russians didn't really figure this math out. So they sent several cosmonauts. They just kind of sh- tried to shoot them really fast at the moon. And that you can still hear them screaming as they're reaching the end of the solar system. Um, I'm only partially making that joke up, by the way. There, there is a cosmonaut who they miscalculated his entry. I cannot remember his name, but you can look it up. This is a true story. Um, they recal- miscalculated his entry, and somehow his vessel was burning up as it was re-entering the atmosphere. And his radio contact remained on the entire time. And there's actual radio recordings of him cussing out the people on the ground in Russian as he goes to the earth. Because the Russians were not big on math. They were like, big rocket, shoot you that way, everything is good. 
All right. They got all the Nazi, we, all this whole space program was based on, on Nazi scientists, if you don't know this. The guy that ran NASA, Niels Bohr, was a Nazi communist, a Nazi, Nazi scientist. Well, we got all the ones that did all the math, and the Russians got all the ones that built big rockets. They were like, we put on a big rocket, we shoot it very fast. Our guys, our guys are all like, maybe we should aim better. Rocket! Um, and so, and that was, that was kind of the difference. So if you do not, if you start at the same place, but your tolerance is a little bit off, your vector is a little bit off, you will miss the point. And we can start at the same scriptures. Jesus learned the same scriptures that these, these Jewish leaders learned when he was a child. John learned the same scriptures. Peter and Paul and everybody else learned the same scriptures. Yet when they started and their original starting point was what, do the Bi- what does the Bible say to me, for me? They vectored off. And Jesus says you've got to start with who is God, where we are. So I want to I end the last couple minutes. I want to give you uh, just some simple rules on how to read the scripture. I only have two rules. I call this a hermeneutical lens. Now, hermeneutical sounds awesome, right? Hermeneutical means how do you read it? That's all it means. It's a theological term. It comes from the god Hermes, but let's not get into that. Um, what is our hermeneutical lens? And Jesus is teaching us a very simple concept of how to read the Bible. Now, I'm going to go ahead and preface this with a presupposition. Um, This is a Christian reading of the Bible. How does a Christian read the Bible? And here is rule number one. I've already made this, this point pretty well. What is our purpose in reading? What is our purpose in reading? Is your purpose in reading the scriptures for your glory Or is it to see what God is doing? Now, notice I use the active tense, not the active voice or or the present tense. I did not say to see what God was doing. I said to see what God is doing. Are you going to the scriptures to see what God is doing? Are you going to the scriptures to see what Christ can do now? Or are you going to the scriptures looking for what you can get from him? How often, growing up, did I hear people say, well, you've just got to claim this verse. You've just got to claim this verse. Um, When my daughter was struggling with some stuff when she was in second grade, first and second grade, she was struggling with a a lot of stuff. Um, And... And uh, people were people were trying to give her all kinds of advice. You know, of course, wh- what advice do you give to a second grader? Right? Second graders dealing with anxiety, they don't understand the psychology of what's going. I mean, Ariel would have because she's wicked smart. But, um, but you know, they're trying to give her advice, and so they're giving her warming stones or what was it called? What did they? What was it? A worry stone. Put this in your pocket and rub it when you start. You feel worried. You know, letting you know. That you, I'm like, I'm like, really? And then I'm walking in a Christian bookstore, and what do they have? They have worry stones with Bible verses on them. Put this in your pocket. I'm like, wouldn't it be easier to just remember the Bible verse? I mean, it's only like four words. You know, it's, instead you've got to carry a rock around. I mean, why are we carrying rocks around in our pockets anyway? Um, you know, and, and people are, they, they want to do all this stuff. And you know what the reality is? It's like the Bible is not an enchantment book. 
It's not a book of, of, of curses and, and, and spells. That if we just go to the Bible and learn the right verse and keep reciting that verse, our problems will go away. That, my friends, is witchcraft. That's not what the scriptures are for. Just keep quoting this verse. Quoting, how many remember the prayer of Jabez? Oh, man. Not only was it out of context... The, the book was terrible. The sermon it was based on had no grounding in, in biblical hermeneutics. But the idea was, just you just claim a promise from the Bible and it will be true. I'm like, I'm going to claim the, Bible, the verse in the Bible that says that all false prophets will be burned in the lake of fire. <laughs> what is your purpose in reading? Is it to see what God is doing or is it for your own glory? Simple rule. You can read the Bible every day, read through the Bible in a year, do all those things, but if you don't see Jesus, if you don't see God when you're reading it, you're just reading words. I mean, let's be honest. You could power through the book of Ezekiel, but how much edification are you going to get out of that? There's all kinds of craziness going on in that book. Wheels in heaven brass shoes. I mean, nothing makes any sense in that first few chapters of that book. Rule number one, what is our purpose in reading? Rule number two, how does it harmonize with Christ? You want to resolve the contradictions in the Bible? Look for Christ. Make a list. You're reading through the Bible and you go, I do not know how that fits with the rest of the Bible. There are stuff in the Bible I still don't really understand what's going on. I'll be perfectly honest. Book of Judges, there's a guy who apparently sacrifices his daughter because he made a promise to God about it. Don't get that one. I don't get it at all. And every commentary I've ever read has explained it and at the end basically had some sentence went, huh? Um, how do you explain stuff like, like the strange fire in, in, in uh, I think it's in Leviticus, where the two sons, two sons of Aaron, they offer strange fire, and so God just scorches them. Like, how does, what does that make, how does that make sense? You've got to make a list of those things. You can't just go, you can't do one of two things. You can't go, well, that proves the Bible's just dumb, and walk away. But you also can't go, eh, whatever, and just, and just accept it. You, you need to take, you need to, as you're reading the Bible, you need to be interacting with the scriptures and saying, how does this harmonize with Christ? And after you've got your list, you've got to check it twice. You've got to work your way through it. It's too early for a Christmas joke. Um, you, you've got to keep that list active because as you read the scriptures, you will find the resolution of those things. You will find the answers and the solutions to those things. If you read the scriptures, how does it harmonize in Christ? If there is a dissonance, don't ignore it. Watch for God's resolution. Watch for God's resolution. We, we so often, we, we want to we read the Bible, we want to be quick, we want to be fast, we want to just rock through it. That's not how it works. If you want to see the infinite, omnipotent, redeemer, creator, son of God in the scriptures, it's going to take some work because he exceeds our imagination and our capacity. You say, 
I want to read the Bible and not do any work whatsoever. Okay. You will not see Jesus. You will miss the point if you do not think that reading the Bible is work. It absolutely is. You say, well, I'll just ask you. Because I've spent my whole life. I would be depriving you of the joy of that work if I just answered your questions. Besides, I don't know the answer to some of the questions. A Christian hermeneutic. A Christian hermeneutic. Jesus teaching this. What is the purpose? What is your purpose in reading the Bible? What is your purpose? And are you looking for harmony in Christ? Are you looking for resolution in him? Uh, I'm an Old Testament guy. Old Testament scholarship is all about the Bible doesn't make any sense. Let's throw it out. That's what mainstream Old Testament scholarship is about. I have read over the last two years somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 books and articles on the Old Testament. I lost track, seriously. Now, they're not all big books. Don't think these are all like 300 pages long. Or that I paid attention to a lot of what I was reading. I was reading very fast. Um, you know what I have found? The vast majority of Old Testament scholarship, their solution to the complexity of the scriptures is to just go, well, it's just not true. They would never say it that simply. They come up with all these convoluted, really long, complicated sentences that ultimately amount to, we just don't believe that God did that. Because he doesn't do it now. I've never seen it. I mean, that's going to be the name of my book. When I write a book about Old Testament scholarship, it's going to be, well, I've never seen it. Because that's how everybody treats it. Elijah calling down fire to burn up troops in, in Second Kings. I've never seen that happen. Would you want to? I mean, really? Would you? You know, oh, resurrection. I've never seen one of those. First of all, you may not know that you've seen one. I've seen some healing happen that if it weren't a resurrection, it was pretty close. You say, well, you know, God's speaking to Moses. That doesn't happen anymore. Really? Really? We don't see miracles. Every single Christian is a miracle, by the way. Every single one of us that put our faith in Christ and he uh, quickened our dead spirits and made us alive, transformed us, justified us so that we are, not, we are not being held over in punishment for our sins. You are a miracle that God did. How are we reading the Bible? Jesus says if we read it looking for him, we will find him. And if we read it looking for ourselves, guess who we will find? Us. So I encourage you. Maybe you're not reading the scriptures on a regular basis. It just doesn't interest you. You're not engaged. As a Christian, give it a shot. Read the scriptures looking for Jesus. Being honest about the things that don't make sense. I, I'm not kidding about lists. I have notebooks full of lists of things that don't make sense in the Bible. That eventually God resolves. Eventually I find it. 
eventually it finds me. How are we reading? Are we looking for Jesus or are we looking for ourselves? Join me in a word of prayer. Your word is your word, God. Your works are your works. And we honestly focus on ourselves way too much. I do it, everybody does it. Help us to see your son, Jesus, in the scriptures. To not look past him, to not rush over and miss what he has for us. Lord, help us to be comfortable with the dissonance as we look for him and celebrate the harmony and the resolution when he reveals himself. Jesus, we pray this in your name.